Today's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 1. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. As, they, as soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may be proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. A leper came to him, begging him, and kneeling, he said to him, If you choose, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the word, so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out in the country, and people came to him from every quarter. The Gospel of our Lord. Thank you, Joel. You may be seated. <clears throat> Grace and peace to you this morning. <clears throat> the Gospel of Mark, literarily speaking, is characterized by the way it crams incidents from Jesus' life together, leaving the reader barely any time to digest one episode before diving headfirst into the next. This is an intentional move on Mark's part. Jesus is on an urgent mission in Mark's gospel. He's less interested in guiding people gently at their own pace through the hard work of change and more about simply enacting God's reign on earth, whether people are ready for it or not. This makes sense considering the first words Mark remembers Jesus saying just a few verses before today's reading. Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. 
These words are more or less Jesus' thesis statement for the Gospel of Mark. They're words that are very present tense, aren't they? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Jesus isn't talking about a someday, somewhere hope, but an irreversible understanding that God is alive and that everything that exists buzzes with God's glory. And lo and behold, that includes you too. And so why would you choose to live under any other set of assumptions about how life works once you've realized that the time is fulfilled and God's kingdom has come near to you. It's here, it's now, and it's contagious. And that's what drives Jesus in this gospel. It's interesting to see how others react to Jesus and his urgent message in today's short outburst of incidents in Scripture, Jesus encounters three distinct groups with three distinct reactions. There's the demons, there's the desperately sick people, and then there's the crowds. So first are the demons. We, living in 2018, America, don't have much room in our daily imaginations for demons or unclean spirits. And when we do think about them, we're probably drawing off what we've seen in horror movies. And so when we encounter demons in scripture, they seem strange and foreign and like bygone relics of another time, and we don't know what to do with them. And so we're tempted to either explain them away using science or just flat out ignore them. It's been helpful to me, though, to take the presence of demons in scripture seriously. There's a sick kind of evil in the world that we see daily in our lives and community and in the news. This evil is more than an absence of good. It seems there is some sort of force out there actively resisting God's reign of love which has come close to the world. The way the writers of the Gospels knew how to talk about that sort of evil was through the language of demons. And so if you can't square demons with your modern worldview, that's totally okay. Do a little mental find and replace then when you read scripture. Whenever you see demon or unclean spirit, translate it in your head as that which actively resists and denies God's activity and keeps our hearts closed. All of this is a very long way of saying that demons, quite predictably, know exactly what is happening when Jesus shows up, and they resist it. Evil in this world can see quite clearly who Jesus is because evil has the most to lose. When God's reign of abundant love touches someone, their heart opens to God and to the world 
and to life itself, and the demonic force which has kept their heart closed no longer has a place, but is cast out. So that's demons. That leaves the desperately sick and the crowds. Now, you might think that these two groups are going to react to Jesus similarly because they're both human beings, after all, rather than some otherworldly force, and they both look to Jesus for help. But actually, the two groups that are closest together are demons and desperately sick people. Demons have the most to lose, and the desperate have the most to gain. It is precisely their desperation that allows them to see who Jesus is and what he's about so clearly. They know their lives don't need just a tune-up and a fresh coat of paint. They stand in need of a whole new reality. And that's exactly what Jesus is offering by proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near. To have Jesus change them, to be welcomed into the way of abundant life, of God's reign coming close here and now, that's a revolution for the desperate people who come to Jesus. It's as jarring a change for them as for the demons which Jesus casts out. Deep change is exactly what these people are longing for. I don't think it's the same way for the crowds who come to see Jesus. You can kind of tell that Jesus isn't thrilled about the multitudes in Mark's gospel. He's always asking people to keep their mouths shut about him, to not spread the news. And that seems confusing, right? Like, wouldn't the Messiah want as many people to know about him as possible? But Jesus intuits that those who flock to see him think that they don't have much to either gain or lose in their encounter with Jesus. The stakes are very low for the crowds. The crowds are not desperate. They're not looking for deep change. If anything, they're mildly content with their lives. And so they approach Jesus not like he's someone who's offering this whole new reality of God's kingdom in our midst. They approach him like a supplement. Sure, they might have some minor maladies that need clearing up, but what they really want is a tidy exchange with Jesus. They approach him with the same set of expectations I have when I update the operating system on my phone. They want Jesus to help make their existing lives run smoother and easier, not change them entirely. But boy, is that not what Mark's Jesus is about. Jesus isn't here to slightly and comfortably improve the status quo. He's here to enact God's kingdom, which comes close to this world. That's an earth-shaking thing. And if we take it lightly, we're missing the point. In fact, 
Mark's gospel shows us that the greatest threat to Jesus is not outright opposition to him, but surface-level engagement with his message. Responsibility for his crucifixion doesn't actually belong to the demons who recognize very clearly who Jesus is. It belongs to the crowds who are disappointed that Jesus and his message just aren't convenient enough for them. This weekend, we commemorate the life and the work of Martin Luther King Jr. I'm a pastor, not a teacher, so I normally don't assign homework, but here goes. Take half an hour this weekend. Sit down and read his letter from a Birmingham city jail. Grapple with his words that are strikingly relevant 50 years after his murder. Dr. King heard Jesus' message that the time had been fulfilled and that God's kingdom had come near to this earth, and he grasped very clearly the earth-shaking consequences of what it meant to believe that. He knew that he had to start demanding the dignity his people were owed rather than waiting for it to trickle down someday. For years now, I have heard the words, wait, he writes in that letter. This wait has almost always meant never. He knew that the time had been fulfilled and he had to act now. And like Jesus, Dr. King was met by three distinct groups. There were demonic defenders of segregation who quite rightly understood what he was up to, and there were oppressed African Americans desperate for equal rights who understood clearly what they, what they had to gain. And finally, there were the crowds, crowds of white moderates who generally sympathized with Dr. King's aims, but wished he could go about it quietly, a little more slowly, at a pace that was comfortable for them. Dr. King reserved his harshest words for this last group. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute understanding from people of ill will, he writes. And lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. He couldn't comprehend how people could stand so close to God's struggle for justice in the world without being totally drawn into it. When you see the kingdom of God coming near to you, you can't unsee it. You can't just pretend it didn't happen. Kick and scream and rage against God's call if you must, but you can't shrug it off. This week, I met with a congregant. She retired a couple years ago, and she's now involved with Mount Olivet's community partners. She said this, 
It was easy for me before I retired because I always knew what my purpose was. I was called to my job and to my kids. But when I retired, I realized I could no longer use those things to avoid answering another call from God, a call that still scares me, if I'm honest. I realized God was calling me to directly serve people experiencing poverty and homelessness. That's what recognizing Jesus and his message of God's kingdom coming close looks like. She wasn't getting involved because of a vague notion that she should be doing good deeds because that's what good people do and she wants to think of herself as a good person. No, she was doing it because God had birthed something new and beautiful within her. And she could no longer deny that the time had been fulfilled and that God's kingdom had come near. And so she had to act even though it scared her to do so. That's the hope of why we gather here. It's to hear the promise of God's reign of love coming close to each one of you, and then for you to wrestle with how you are going to live in light of this earth-shaking news. Don't shrug it off. Dare to engage with it. To those of you living with addiction, God's nearness to you sets you free to reach out for help. To those of you suffering silently with mental illness, God's nearness to you sets you free to live your truth and name your need in honesty. To those of you walking the road of grief, God's nearness to you sets you free to not tidy up the mess but to walk with confidence the road set ahead of you. And to those of you longing to see a spirit of welcome and dignity and community and justice in this world, God's nearness to you sets you free to start acting for that world here and now. For the time has been fulfilled and God's kingdom has come near. Praise be to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.